1: Good morning, and welcome back to another interesting episode of Logistics with Purpose. I'm Enrique Alvarez, and I'm with my co-host, Christy. How are you doing today?
2: I'm good. I'm I'm excited to talk to our guest today. We're going to have a little bit different than we've done in the past, where we cover more about a topic necessarily than an overall person and mission. So we're going to try this out and see how the audience likes it, but I think this is going to be a really interesting topic for people to learn more about the behind the scenes.
1: I think so too. It's going to be fun. I think it's going to be interesting. And thank you very much for the heads up because I am the one that usually drills into the personal (laughs) aspects of everyone that we interview. So I'll make sure that I stick to the script this time. Well, we're going to learn about that
2: too. I will will follow
1: your lead. No, uh, it's it's an amazing organization. I think that it's going to be super interesting we're not probably we're not going to have enough time to cover everything that they do and especially uh, for the last 20 years and with the things that are happening but anyways let's without further ado do you want to introduce our guests
2: yes today on the podcast we have ryan graybill who's the director of international disaster services at convoy of hope and we have audra Weddle, the global shipping director of a Convoy with Hope. So we're going to learn more about them, more about the organization, and then we're going to talk a lot about uh, international disaster relief today on the podcast as well. So I'm excited to hear their perspectives and their experiences because they've been doing this for a long time. And it's a really interesting niche in our industry that probably not a lot of people have experience with. So we're going to get the scoop from them.
1: I'm excited about it. Hey, Ryan, Audra, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for giving us some of your time today. Honored to be here. Yes, thank you.
2: Yes. So we're just going to dive right in and hear more about you guys. Before we dive into the behind the scenes of international disaster relief, we're going to talk to you a bit and get to get to know you a little bit more personally and as people. So Audra, why don't you start us off? I know you're coming to us live today from your brand new warehouse and excited about that. So tell us a little bit more to start off with about about you personally and your professional background.
3: Okay. Um, I'm married for over 31 years, and I have two boys that are grown, and so we're empty nesters. So we're enjoying life right now. <laughs> it's been interesting with this move that we're doing. It's the first time I've been involved in a distribution center relocation. So in my background has been mainly shipping outbound, and I have done some importing. My husband and I lived in Germany for a few years, and I reordered merchandise and brought in containers. Instead of shipping them, I actually imported, and then um, we spent a couple of years in South Africa working with some missionaries and was able to help with customs clearing and different things of personal household goods, so that was a little different than yeah. what we do now, but yeah. And What
2: did you do in Germany?
3: He was in the military, so okay. I worked for the exchange store there and worked for a commercial company as well. So
2: yeah. So you've been around products and moving them for a very long time then.
3: Yes. Yeah. For 28
2: plus years. So yeah,
3: it's been a while.
2: (laughs) That's incredible. And what did you like best about Germany and South Africa?
3: Germany, just the whole culture, being able to travel freely from one country to the other was great. Just loved the view, you know, the countryside and different things there. And South Africa was a bit of a challenge um, logistically. And, um, but it was great. People were wonderful. We only lived there for two years, but made it to like 13 different countries in that two years.
2: Wow.
3: Yeah. Yeah. So it was quite different. Um, We lived near Johannesburg, so security and stuff was an issue there, but we were able, felt safe. So we were good. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and then in my free time now, I Ryan knows this, but I officiate basketball and volleyball.
2: Oh wow. Oh, wow. So I
3: love sports. So anything to do with sports, I'm um, I'm there. So yeah, that's a little oh, bit about you. me.
2: I love it. Yeah. And we were just talking about uh the Olympics wrapping up and I was glued to the screen the whole time. So I'm sure you were in on it as well.
1: Yes, for sure. Who ended up winning the volleyball? I forgot don't remember USA. No, USA and, boat, the, women's side. and women. on yeah. the women's side.
2: Yeah. women's side for the first time in history indoor volleyball wow. yes. yeah they swept it yeah. three games straight yeah they did it yeah. was fantastic and, and women's, women's had a basketball. great great olympic
1: games in general Yeah, for sure the Best in a while for so, sure Altra, how did how did you get in convoy of hope when my
3: husband and i were in south africa we were just trying to figure out what we're going to do when we return because we didn't know if we'd go back to africa and spend more time one of the guys i knew from convoy pope just asked me if i'd be interested and I knew about Convoy just from being from the Springfield area at the time. That was the best move for us. So I came on in January of 2002. So I've been here quite a few years. And, um, you know, I thought it'd be maybe a five-year commitment, but that five years has gone into almost 20. So Yeah, I love what I do, though. So
1: it it's an amazing, amazing organization. So I can totally see why you actually stayed a little bit longer than your five-year plan. Yes, For sure. Ryan, what about you? Tell us a little bit more about yourself. Where do you grew up and um, how do you end up where you are now?
0: Yeah. Well, thanks again for the opportunity to be on today. I thought when Audra was talking that we should probably come clean with you guys and say, she said (laughs) in her free time, she officiates. In both of our free time, we work. And then what's left over, (laughs) a little bit of extra free time, then she officiates. But anyway, no, um, you never know what to expect in the disaster world for sure. Yeah. Uh, Specific to your question, I uh, I grew up in central Pennsylvania, and um, I lived there until I went to school in Minneapolis for a few years and went back home for a little bit. And uh, I had gone to a Convoy of Hope event in 1997. The only reason that's significant necessarily is that I was pretty young at the time, and um, Convoy had just started in 94, so I didn't realize it was really early on in, in the organization days. but. I loved the event, loved being a part of it. And Convoy of Hope was just something I had in the back of my mind for years after that point. I think I was, I'm trying to do the math. <laughs> math is hard, guys. I was, was hard. I was i was—I was 13 um, when I was at the event. So it was wow. just something that stuck with me through my teen years and 20s. Um, and kind of, I would check the website to see if there were openings uh, and what may come available and ended up actually coming to the organization as a self-funded volunteer, which hmm. If you have experience in the nonprofit world, as long as you're just a half step above crazy, you know most <laughs> most organizations will take you for free if you're you're willing to come. So absolutely served on the team for a couple of years, and a position became available eventually, and took it. And I responded to domestic and international disasters for about eight years, and then the last three years, uh, so a total of eleven, have just done international. Uh, response with an occasional helping the domestic team get some of our vehicles to the field or something like that. Wow. I I have a, a a commercial driver's license. So you just wow. never know the requests that will come across. <laughs> that's amazing. To kind of jump in and help. So that's, yeah, that's how I ended up at Convoy.
2: That's amazing. And Audrey, we've talked, of course, mentioned the name Convoy of Hope a number of times. And, and Ryan just said, you know, they've been around for almost 30 years. So for anybody out there that's not familiar with Convoy of Hope, will you tell us more about the history and mission?
3: Sure. Our founder, Hal Donaldson, was in, living in California and um, founded Convoy of Hope. It was Church Care America back in 94. He moved to Springfield in 96, I believe. And they changed the name to Convoy of Hope. We got our first tractor trailer. They used to do distribution out of the back of a pickup. Yeah. So, um, first tractor trailer, they were staying in like a 10,000 square foot warehouse and it just, the vision just grew from there. So come 2000, we moved into the current warehouse that we're now moving out of 300,000 square foot warehouse. So, went from 10,000 to (laughs) 300,000. And we had at the time, a handful of tractor trailers. And since then we are up to, I want to say, with including 28 foot box trucks and tractors, we have almost 30 in our fleet now. Wow. And then we have four, over 40 trailers, 52 foot trailers. So it's just grown tremendously over the years. And our mission has pretty much stayed the same about just, we want to be transparent with what we have and use where we're most needed. But you know, um, our mission statement says, we're driving passion to feed the world. And a lot of people like, that's a big statement, but um, seeing it over the years, it really has been a tremendous um, growth here. So yeah, in a nutshell, Ryan may have a little bit more to add to that. And how Um, was it started? How was it founded?
0: The founder of the organization, his parents were actually, I don't know if they were on a trip somewhere or just ran an errand, but his parents were in a car accident and his dad was killed instantly. And his mother was severely handicapped basically, and was in the hospital for weeks and weeks and weeks. And there were four kids in the family and a family in their church. The husband and wife had a conversation and decided, Hey, let's bring these kids and this family into our home. And they lived in a single wide trailer and already had three or four kids of their own ended up being like 10 people there. And the response of that family and the local church, the community, the places that they had connection with really kind of set the stage for those kids to then go and found Convoy of Hope. I think Hal also attributes part of the founding of it to his meeting uh, Mother Teresa Mm -hmm. and, you know, did the whole honor to meet you conversation. And she said, young man, what are you doing to feed the poor? And he was basically like, I'm not really... (laughs) Doing anything. And I think most people's minds would kind of immediately jump into I don't have money or influence and you know that kind of stuff. And she said, everyone can do something. Mm -hmm. And you know, that was that was another launching point um, of just seeing what happened. And the organization started by delivering groceries in the back of a pickup truck in Northern California to very, very small communities uh, in Northern California, if you've ever been up there before. Uh, you know, there's a lot of a lot of communities that that uh, don't make it onto the news, like L.A. and San Francisco and right. some of the larger cities, and so um, that's how it began and turned into, like Audra said, a fleet of of 30 plus semis and all kinds of uh,
1: different initiatives and programs that the organization does. It's unbelievable, and I'm just reading from your website, but 1.3 billion plus food and supplies shared, 163 million people and more helped. It's just amazing how much you're really making a difference in the world and how quickly you have grown from uh, 94 to today. And uh, congratulations. It, it must be, you must have a really, really good team. And and Ryan speaking, you were about to start talking about your initiatives. Tell, tell, tell us a little bit more about, I think that you have six main initiatives that, that you support. Tell us a little bit more about that.
0: Yeah. So of course with any organization, you know, we've grown and added programs or initiatives, as we call them, to to our list. I had actually called Hal uh before I came to Convoy of Hope maybe 15 years ago and talked with him about starting my own nonprofit. And he advised if you can find an organization that's doing something you're passionate about or willing to start, you know, another initiative, you save yourself like a decade of time right. of getting your name out there and all that kind of stuff. So you know, in line with that, Convoy has seen some needs that exist around the world um, and had people join the team that had skill sets that helped us to expand. Audra mentioned that the mission statement is driving passion to feed the world, but, you know, that can look very different. And we know that teaching people to fish is a lot better than just providing a fish. Um, And so on the disaster relief side, we meet immediate needs and work to, you know, make sure that there's help well after. Um, that immediate response is done, and we can get into that in a little bit. But in addition to that, Convoy feeds uh, almost 400,000 kids around the world. We are training farmers. We have an agriculture program that looks pretty different depending on the setting, the country, the location, the needs. But we've seen, you know, five, six, seven hundred 700% crop yield increases in a lot of the communities where we're working. Ultimately, Convoy's goal is to work our way out of a, of a community. When a community doesn't really need any of the things that we offer, right. you know, we consider that success. Um, in addition to that, we have a initiative called Women's Empowerment. And in addition to some education pieces and um, stuff like that, there's a uh, basically a business startup branch to that uh, initiative of cool. training women, on the finance side and marketing side and that kind of stuff related to a small business. Most of these women are mothers of kids in our feeding program and a large percentage of them do not have another income earner in the household. So it's very, very um, important that we're able to offer this, but just asking questions like what is something that people in your community have to travel 10 or 15 or 20 miles to get that product or get that service? You know, Are any of these things something that you would be able to offer in the community for maybe even a slightly higher price than what it is 20 miles away, but at least someone doesn't have to travel. So just asking those questions and already pulling from skill sets that these women have and then providing some seed capital. We don't do uh, micro loans, micro financing. We just provide some startup capital to get the business going. And um, the results have been pretty incredible. Um, Ultimately, our goal, like I said, is to um, help generations and generations to come uh, and not just impact one life
1: on So the, that's um, kind of a
0: summary of some of the main ones
1: well no on the on the women's initiative i mean i was looking at some of them as well and there's inter- very interesting stories so i'll Everyone that's listening or looking or watching this episode, I would really encourage you to go to their website. They have amazing stories from all over the world. And my question, Ryan, was how do you kind of narrow down like all these different areas around the world to provide some of the support that you're giving them? Because I, I read El Salvador and Kenya and Ethiopia and Honduras. It's really it's really all over, it seems like. You know, a
0: lot of it is relationship and networking and just seeing where the needs are, the opportunities sometimes we are able to turn a disaster response into a long-term program. That would be the goal where it's possible. And like Nepal would probably be one of the most recent examples of earthquake in 2015 in in Nepal. And we've had a village that we just left within the last six months uh, or eight months where a disaster had happened. You know, we brought in our program team provided agriculture training and some of these programs and we're just not needed there anymore. And so that's, that's a great example um, of kind of the whole holistic approach, but we'll be in uh, more than 30 countries by the end of this year. And um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, it's really incredible to see it grow. Of course, we have team members that, you know, that's their focus to look at opportunities that exist out there while we also have team members trying to figure out how we're going to pay for it as we grow, you know, it kind of takes everyone. I jokingly say sometimes that people like Audra and I we're in our jobs because we don't like asking for money, you know, we're asking for help. So we're in the implementation side, but yeah, relying on, you know, the Lord relying on relationships and connections and, and just, just taking it one year at a time and just seeing the organization grow and expand. I think Audra was probably told early on when she started that, the organization was experiencing growing pains, quote unquote, growing pains. I was told that when I started and I just heard it last week. So, you know, it's just one of those things where sometimes- You'll never end up growing
1: it, right? And yeah, which, yeah. Which is great, which means that you guys are continuous, continuously yeah. helping others. And uh, again, sure. uh, the six main initiatives for people that are listening to us, like the Women's Empowerment, the Agriculture community events, rural initiatives, children's feeding. And of course, we're going to deep dive into the disaster services, but it seems like a really good business model, if if, if I may say so, because you not only provide disaster relief, but then you stay within the community until they are everything is back. And the example you gave in Nepal and some others is, is amazing, how you're following disasters, not only to provide quick kind of uh, relief, but then Broader, more impactful, longer-term kind of support to the communities and the women and the children. So, congratulations! This it's it's, yeah. it's so inspirational, inspiring to kind of talk to people like you guys. So, thanks again. Well, it takes 400 and some people to pull it all off. So, wow. Audra
0: and I are just two of <laughs> two of that massive team. But we'll 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 pass on your
1: your kind words, Christy. Do well, we do, do we want to deep dive into disaster relief? I know that that was a big topic for today's discussion. Yes.
2: Yes, I'm excited to hear more about this. Um, whenever I was first introduced to Brian via email, I was like, oh, th- I think this would be a really fascinating topic for our audience just to hear about international disaster relief as a, a very niche topic, because I think you know, a lot of us sort of go about our lives or our jobs, and we don't really think about that until something happens. And unfortunately, it seems like something and you know is always happening, and so you guys are there to take care of it. So Ryan, I I know from your standpoint, I'd just love to hear there's a lot going on. You have to be, um, while the rest of us are just carrying out our lives, you're preparing for the next disaster. And so you're there when it strikes. So how do you you and your team stay proactive and prepared in order to respond when when a disaster strikes and what kind of systems and processes keep you on track to, to be able to jump in there as soon as something happens?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. You know, our, our international team is our, our international responses look very different than our domestic responses because we can't drive anything anywhere. <laughs> we don't we don't have the luxury of loading up our 30 semis and just driving product somewhere. So we're always, always trying to figure out what the best way is to um, provide relief in those moments. Oftentimes, sometimes I I give the United States a hard time. I'll be honest with you. We're not great at international news. <laughs> the news oftentimes covers things that happen in the U S but oftentimes there are disasters where hundreds of thousands of people have been displaced or um, some of our humanitarian projects that we're working on where families have been in really rough situations for years and years. So um, sometimes people will ask me, you know, what are you guys doing nowadays? You know, I haven't heard about any disasters in the news and you know, I let them know that we have 10 or 15 or 20 active projects at that mm-hmm. time. And they're like, where? <laughs> you know, So some of it is educating our, our own support base and our own donors right. um, and people that we connect with as to the, the, um, the plight of refugees, you know, the situation that families find themselves in after disasters. But for us, we stay in a state of ready. Some of that has to do with having products staged in our warehouse that we often use um, even solar lanterns, water filters, and that kind of stuff, in addition to the food and water, hygiene, tarps, all that, uh, all of those types of products. But just staying available at all times. It's a very unique position, a very uh, unique job to work in, to know that like in 48 hours, I could be in another country. But we build relationships as well. Uh, we want to meet as many people as possible outside of disaster time. So when someone says, hey, I have a friend that you know works in this country, I think that they would be really good if something ever happened there. We just set up a Zoom call. It's not a matter of just putting them on a list um, so that when something happens, we call them. It's kind of too late at that point. But thankfully, and unfortunately, I guess for those countries, we have responded to disasters in, in uh, 95 countries. So we have some relationships built already, um, You know, have connections all over the world that we rely on. And so- that's a huge part of being ready, um, just yeah. knowing who to connect with.
2: And the products in your warehouse, are those? were those donated and just stored? Or that, is that part of what the fundraising team is to be able to get you access to some of that stuff so it is always available?
0: Yes to both. Most of it is donated. Some of the products, like water filters, if we don't get a donation and we get below a certain quantity, um, we will order some if we need to. So we, we try to, you know, like any nonprofit, we try to leverage donations, um, GIK donations, product donations as much as possible to save funds for paying for program expenses that cannot be covered with food,
1: uh, you know, or, or, or donations. So, um, yeah. Ryan, quick question regarding, oh, sorry, Christy, you had another one. No, go ahead. No, just uh, I was curious about like certain disasters that seem to kind of be happening more regularly and usually kind of some seasonality to them, like maybe hurricanes and things like that. Is that kind of part of your normal schedule? I mean, you know that this month and this month, you know that some islands are going to be hit by a big hurricane. Is it, do you see that kind of happening more often? And are you starting to forecast that kind of more accurately? Well, that's a great question. The, the first thing that you and the listener
0: should know is that the Philippines is the disaster capital of the world. So outside really? of blizzard, they get blizzards, they get almost anything. Yeah. So we have an office there, but we're constantly having conversations about what it looks like to be prepared there. But, but yeah, the Pacific ocean has its own, you know, storm season, the Southern hemisphere, Australia, New Zealand, uh, Vanuatu, Fiji has their own time frame, similar to our Atlantic hurricane season, which runs June 1st to December 1st. You know, right now we're in the peak of or we're headed into the peak of storm season for the Atlantic hurricane season. We try to prepare as much as possible, as much as technology has advanced and our phones can scan our fingers or our faces to let us into it. Uh, You just don't know where a tornado is going to land exactly. And you just don't know where exactly a hurricane is going to go. So uh, last year, Hurricane Laura in Lake Charles, Louisiana, they actually forecasted that storm within a few miles of where it made landfall. That is pretty atypical, especially when you're talking the the size of the Caribbean Ocean (laughs) and just how many places a storm could go. So we're constantly watching... Uh, constantly trying to stay prepared as much as we can, but you know, unsure exactly what's going to happen. Oftentimes, depending on the type of disaster.
2: How it big is your sense. team?
0: Uh, our international disaster team is is ten. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and and we work with staff around the world as well when something happens in their country or region. So it's not that it all relies on just us ten, but our team would represent the initial goers. Um, you know, if we travel to a disaster when it happened and the people that are responsible for making sure we're ready
1: ryan would you mind sharing like maybe a particular story that you remember that might might have some special meaning to you or some yeah some story that you can probably just explain to our to our listeners and people that are watching this a little bit better or something that kind of caught your yeah attention
0: oh man i have a a large vault in my head of stories (laughs) of of things that we've experienced you know, one of the most, if I could share just a, a two sure. quick stories, a special one, and just very unique to show you our, our, our um, scope of coverage. The special one would be, and this has happened many times, but after Super Typhoon Haiyan in 2013 in the Philippines, many, many islands were hit by that storm. Tacloban City would be the place where most people would remember that, remember that event. It was a lot of fatalities, just a lot of loss, but off the island of of uh, Panay uh, in Iloilo we distributed some relief supplies on an island that as we were pulling up to the island with some relief supplies people came down to the shore and and were weeping they mostly fishermen and very reliant on boats as there were no stores or anything like that on this island you know just a small small community but their boats had been destroyed by the storm and so occasionally someone had come by and a person from the community could get on somebody else's boat and go into town basically. But this was the first time that they were receiving help and it was a few days after the storm. So those experiences are, that's just one of many, you know, that, that we get to be a part of. I, I, I have had the opportunity of being in a place before where no one has ever seen someone with my skin color, have no idea what the United States was had never even heard that wow. name before. And comically for our team at home, myself and my colleague, they actually thought that we were gods. So wow. in, their, in their local folk culture, there were some gods that were light skinned that you know, came, and, came and did something years and years ago, centuries ago, and they thought that they were being revisited by those gods. So it's it really, ultimately it's a humbling experience just to be in that setting and, and not to be thought of as a god, But to get to be in a place that's just so unique and so devastated by a disaster, in that case, it was flooding. But those are just some of the situations that we find ourselves in that you kind of ask yourself, how did we get here? (laughs) But of course, we're we're honored to be there and and provide relief. So
1: that's that's amazing. And thank you very much for sharing those stories. It's it's incredible. There's still places in the world where people don't are not connected enough, right, that they might not even know where the U.S. is or or. It's incredible. I must be a very unique uh, feeling for sure. Audra, let's. You have a lot of experience uh, distributing and shipping, and uh, you already mentioned a little bit while you were introducing yourself. But I think you've shipped to over ninety countries. Is that, is that correct? Well, uh, with Combo of Hope,
3: we have worked in over ninety countries. Shipping wise, we may have not shipped to all those. We may have purchased in country or we could have done a transshipment that was already in the works for another country and we a disaster happened, so we would transship it on over to that country. So there's a couple different areas that we find it wise not to ship. Because of timing, it may take too long. The disaster response may already be over with by the time the vessel actually arrives in that port. Or they need immediate assistance. So a neighboring country that maybe didn't get affected by the disaster that happened has product for us to purchase in, and we can get over that border a lot quicker than a vessel can get around the world. So it just kind of depends upon what the disaster is, if it's gonna be long-term or if it's a short-term, there's some that just happen that's gonna only be a very short time, but there's some that will be longer responses. So it makes sense to go ahead and plan ahead and arrange containers to go over. We do some air freight, and- Air Freight's a little bit more costly. I say that little bit as in quotes, as in 10 times the amount of (laughs) container actually costs. So it's quite a bit costly, but we do have some donors that will donate freight. So we can get some air freight in um, quickly that way. One of my own stories that I have um, was a new one for me. We actually chartered a vessel for one of our disaster responses. And that was the first time that I had to do paperwork for the full vessel and not just you know 10 containers so that was a new challenge that i would accept again
1: so <laughs> where, where did you where do you ship this vessel to
3: that one went to bvi so the british virgin islands and then we sent containers from there to surrounding islands afterwards too because um you know a lot of the supplies they needed was building supplies or they needed equipment to help rebuild. So we sent some things like that, generators and different things. Then we sent some food, water. We did potable water in the belly of the ship and you know, just different things. So that, as we were doing that, another hurricane approached. So we had to, the captain of that vessel had to backtrack and go around the hurricane. And so it was just uh, crazy times on that one, but it was good. We learned a lot of lessons but it went smooth for our first time ever doing that. But, That's great. Yeah. How, yeah. So
1: what can you tell us about like just supply chains and logistics right now? Cause we were talking before we went live that what you guys do is already tough and really challenging. And there's a lot of pressure because you have to deliver the goods quickly after a disaster. How has coronavirus impacted what you guys do on daily basis and, and how have you been kind of managing this more efficiently?
3: Well, no, on the daily basis, we have a um, shipping schedule for our children's feeding. So we already know how many containers we're going to do in the month of August, September. So we're planning ahead. But now since last year, we were, everything kind of got put on hold for about a month and we had enough supplies in country. That's one thing we do. We ship ahead. So our feeding program can continue on if we do have a hiccup in some kind of delay at port or a rail congestion, which we've all seen this year. and Or a ship no. stuck in the Suez Canal,
1: hypothetically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, not that anything yeah. like that would happen, right?
3: Oh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, we uh, everyone asked, do you have containers on that one, for instance, on the Suez Canal? And it's like, no, but those containers held up other containers to get right. through that we were expecting right. in or different things. So, I mean, it's a trickle effect on everything. But we were able to continue our feeding last year, which was a miracle in itself. We actually grew our numbers last year. It was amazing because we didn't know if we would be able to do our 10% growth. And we were able to. So um, we're seeing growth everywhere. But now with the transit times have gone from anywhere from 21 to 30 days as normal. Now it's anywhere from maybe 21 days, all the way up to 78 days. So we're seeing a huge delay due to port congestion, due to rail congestion, doing, you know, a lot of ports are working on very minimal staffing. So it's longer to get vessels unloaded and containers cleared, but we've been able to continue on in all of our feeding programs. Shipping has not stopped. So we've been able to can do that. Of course, now we're seeing rate increases. Yeah. It's probably one of the highest rates I've seen in 20 years. Um, and, Hopefully, they go back down. But right now, the demand is so high that we're seeing those rate congestion, between congestion rates increasing, just a different world we're living in.
1: It's it's incredible. I've never, I mean, we've been in logistics for a while, and I've never seen such high rates either. I mean, it seems outrageous that steamship lines just continue to mm-hmm. increase the rates uh, while providing the same service as well. Mm-hmm. So it's, or even worse service with all the congestions <laughs> and the transit times and all that. It's, um, it is, it is challenging. And of course you guys are doing an amazing job. It's incredible that you were able to grow 10% despite everything else that's going on that speaks very, very highly of, of you and, and the rest of the logistics and supply chain team. In general, what the, you talked a lot about the uh, feeding and uh, what countries are you currently, do you currently have programs that you're feeding regularly? Uh, where do you usually ship that to? As
3: far as shipping goes, um, we can, I'll just kind of go from each region. Central America, we have El Salvador, Guatemala, Nicaragua, Honduras, and we have Haiti. And then we are starting a new initiative. We're doing some in Dominican Republic. And we have the Philippines and Asia. There's other countries we work in that we are not shipping into. Ryan, maybe I'll speak into those a little more too, because. Again, those could have started out as a disaster response, but now we've gone into a feeding program. Brian, you may know a few more in that area. Then we are working in Lebanon some, and then we work, we have our Europe office. They handled all of Europe for us. We're just now looking at sending product there. Um, They procure in countries there, so they get a lot of their food donated there in country or they purchase. But we are looking at um, starting to ship there some to probably in 2022-23. And then we go to South Africa, Kenya, Burkina Faso, Togo. I know I'm missing some, Ryan.
1: All all over the world, basically, (laughs) you know, you.
3: Yeah, (laughs) Um, yeah, and we've got growth planned um, a lot in Africa, probably in the next, I would say, two to five years. And then we have more growth planned in Central America, more countries, South America. So we're seeing a lot of growth, a lot of need out there, and people are recognizing convoy of hope as more as a um, a tool now to be able to use, to be able to you know request um, feeding in their um, areas. So it's a lot of planning that our leadership has right. to look into.
2: And how big is your team, Madra? Two. Oh my gosh. <laughs>
3: It it the international, shipping wow. side, For yeah. international shipping yeah. yeah it was just me until this year um we oh, wow. were able to hire on another person so yeah that's why ryan says in our free time yeah right <laughs> uh, right <laughs> between three and four a.m yeah right yeah yeah pretty much
2: That's incredible. Well, let's bring it back um, domestic for just a second too. Brian, I noticed you guys are part of the National Voluntary Organizations Active in Disaster, quite an acronym. So tell us about this uh, organization. And I thought it was really interesting because um, the collaboration and the partnerships you guys talked about, and just I'm curious as Someone who's given to international and domestic disaster response, how that benefits both the victims receiving help and the those of us that are giving to disasters and want to see um, want to see everybody working together and and people getting help.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, National VOAD, or uh, is is the acronym we use? Uh, the members lovingly call it that. Is a, is a group of, I don't know how many organizations are a part of it. It's been around for a while, um, started out small, of course. Um, some organizations that have been added to the list, even just in the past couple of years, uh, have seen pretty significant growth. Uh, mm-hmm. Groups like Team Rubicon, you may be familiar with, they do uh, cleanup work on homes. Mm-hmm. But I would say that the, the benefit of being a national VOAD member and the benefit of working with other organizations it really all comes back to relationship again. When you know what another organization does, um, you know, for instance, Samaritan's Purse um, has chainsaw team and they'll bring in crews that have uh, harnesses and the whole bit. Our organization does chainsaw work, but we don't send volunteers and staff members up 30 feet into a tree that needs to be brought down with harnesses and the whole bit. That's something that's kind of outside of our scope. Uh, we'll, we'll cut smaller trees and limbs on the ground. So we can refer a homeowner uh, to another organization that we know has the capacity to do something like that. So National VoAD is, is a network that helps to increase those opportunities to know that, hey, this organization is over on this end of town offering this. And this organization would probably be better suited for um, the needs that a certain family has. Now, even though those are all organizations um, based in the United States, there is some interfacing that happens on international disasters with those groups as well. Okay. Most most of those organizations have separate departments that do the international work versus domestic, but either way, the relationship benefits are there to just know who's there. Sometimes, you know, I, you guys probably like getting into the nitty gritty a bit on your podcast <laughs> specifics for your listeners, but sometimes an organization will say, we, don't, we have all this stuff and we have no capacity to move it. Is there a way you guys can help? And we're like, well, yes, those 500 generators you have, that's the item that everybody needs. We would love to help ship those. Is there any way that we could have you know, 50 of them or something like that if we're able to help you? Sometimes organizations say, we're, we're done. We're wrapping up and we have a few hundred thousand dollars or some funding remaining um, that we'd like to give to an organization that's doing great work. So what are you guys doing? So all of those conversations come out of relationship and and national VOAD is just one of the ways that we're we're able to build those relationships before a disaster in addition to during.
2: Yeah, so helps make sure that everybody on the ground is operating both collaboratively and independently. Cause I know like after, I forget which disaster it was where you just saw, again, back to news stories like So many shipments of things just going bad or being spoiled or clothes molding or something that people were, you know, really out of good intentions wanting to get to people in need, but it was just going to waste because there was, you know, it was very disorganized and people weren't collaborating and things like that. So I'm guessing this is sort of operates in that capacity as well
0: we can we can get into the weeds as much as you'd like. You hit so many important points there. I, ultimately, you know we use the phrase right heart, wrong method. Mm. And people oftentimes give out of compassion and they give yeah. for the right reasons, but they can end up hurting um, hurting a local economy is is of course the worst or destroying a local economy as as some articles would tell you is what happened in Haiti, where it was bad and the earthquake actually in many ways made it worse. But the, the, the less serious version of that is, like you were saying, not coordinating well enough to know what's coming in and who has what and why are we both doing the same thing? You know, the, the challenge is that every organization has their own mission and goals. So they're trying to achieve those in addition to, you know, interfacing with other organizations sometimes or oftentimes to the benefit of what they're trying to achieve because that is their goal. Different groups are collaborative on different levels. <laughs> I won't name names. <laughs> but I think, I think ultimately what I'm getting at is collaboration is what's best for the people who've been impacted by the disasters. And so that's, that's how we train our team. We have mission, we have goals, um, we have things we're trying to accomplish. But if we can help another organization or there's an organization offering something that we can partner with them together and do more together for those families, that's something that we're going to pursue.
1: So, um, Christia, do you have another question for Ryan?
2: Yeah, I'm curious, as we think, kind of, we talked about what's been happening, I'm curious to also talk about thinking forward and wondering just, Ryan, how do you think international disaster response has changed? And Audra mentioned some of the ways you guys have had had to adapt during the pandemic, and how do you think how do you think we'll be different on the other side of the pandemic as far as international disaster relief? And, you know, what trends do you see or what, uh, how do you think the future will be shaped by this?
0: Oh, it's such a good question. Um, For starters, I don't think grocery stores will ever be able to go back to people actually walking (laughs) in and getting their groceries, you know, Mm -hmm. here in the US. No, it it has changed a lot. Um, And of course, in addition to the pandemic just technology advances every year um, changes so much in our world. Um, You know, 15 years ago, we all, well, no, 10 years ago, seven years ago, we, we would all sit in a room together and, you know, broadcast a computer on uh, through a projector and watch news and glean most of the information from the news and trying to do some searching, you know, some of your younger listeners, may not remember the days of being told to go outside and play and you end up picking a blade of grass and making a whistle out of it you know it was not that long ago that that was entertainment for us and now we we have so much access to data um to technology to information sharing Um, that changes a lot but i think the pandemic in some ways maybe expedited some of those things as well um creating opportunities for things to move faster and like we talked about already in some ways have slowed a few things way down uh, and created some additional challenges for us. Um, if any of your listeners have a cargo plane that they're looking to donate, we would be more than open to <laughs> receiving that generous donation. But ultimately, you know the container world and the shipping world and trying to figure out what's best time frame wise, you can't send a container to somewhere that's been impacted by a disaster and have it arrive right. 75 days later. So balancing all of that stuff is, is a little bit of a circus act for us, but we, we kind of view ourselves as, as lead troubleshooters and that's always been true for disasters. So this changes things. Um, the last thing I would just add is, is the impact on global economies. Um, we we've just seen, we've just seen some devastating effects, um, on the families that, that we're working with. And, uh, it's, it's, it's really difficult it's really difficult to see um, that take place uh, and only be able to help a certain number of families at a time. Um, but we're hoping that the doors continue to open for us to to serve more families uh, and help more families get back on their feet, uh, especially in places that have just seen uh, their economies just completely implode.
2: Yeah. No, absolutely. And you shared a couple of stories with us, but do you have any, Enrique read out some of the overall stats from Convoy of Hope earlier, but if you have any for your department um, that you'd like to share as well as any advice for up and coming um, leaders who are trying to do similar things?
0: Um, Yeah, for sure. Um, It's an industry where if you want the answers, you want to find the answers and then operate from there, you will constantly be frustrated. You have to stay in a constant state of learning. Um, you have to be willing to handle things as they come. Um, Our first response, we we mentioned earlier that the organization started in 1994. Our first response was in 98. And uh, Hurricane Mitch in Central America, uh, many people remember Harvey in 2017, which Audra referred to earlier with BVI. That was a crazy Atlantic hurricane season uh, for us and other nonprofits. But Hurricane Mitch in 98 dumped an estimated 72 inches of rain in some parts of Central America. Harvey was about 55 in Houston. You add in the mountains and the effect of of flooding that happens with that, and it was quite devastating. So in the grand scheme of time, in the span of time, it wasn't that long ago that we responded to our first disaster. um, And we have responded to more than 500 as an organization now. And um, even just five, six years ago, I think we responded to six or seven international disasters, and this year we'll, we'll probably be in the thirty-something range, wow. uh, if not forty-something. So, you know, never, never be ashamed of humble beginnings, or, or never think that starting somewhere small is is um, not possible. It definitely is, and the industry. You know, the hardest disasters to respond to are the ones that make, uh, that draw a lot of news domestically and every organization goes to it, (laughs) but there aren't that many homes impacted, but on the flip side, um, the Haiti earthquakes and the Japan earthquake and tsunami and super typhoon Haiyan and Nepal earthquake. I mean, the Nepal earthquake destroyed, depending on what news source you read, 500,000 structures. Wow. Became unusable or unlivable, and in the U.S., 500 or 1,000 homes destroyed is a pretty significant disaster. Um, so, in those kinds of situations, you know, the more the merrier, and at the same time, you know, learning the best practices and how to actually benefit families, and not just showing up without a plan. Um, you know, having a local connection. I should have said earlier, you know, our model is to support local relationships and local partners. We know that after a few years people won't remember the name Convoy of Hope potentially there where the disaster happened, but they will remember that um, a local church or a local organization or someone down the street helped them. So, you know, that's that's really our model. We we feel like it's the best in terms of supporting um, local economies, local partners, et cetera, and relationships. But yeah, we, we're learning all the time how to not do things ever again. So we don't have it all figured out and we've learned a lot but yeah, definitely, definitely jump in if that's something that you have a heart for, and we'd love to help help with that process
1: if we can. So, uh, Audra, basically just following the same question that Christy um, posed to Ryan, uh, just a little bit more focused onto the uh, logistics and supply chain and the global markets. What um, what do you think are the well, two two part question? The first is what makes you guys so uh, incredibly uh, efficient when it comes to responding to disasters is there like a couple of things that you would like to highlight there for our audience? And the, and then two, what, is there any advice that you can give to other companies that are currently shipping to those complicated and complex regions of the world that, that, that might help them?
3: Yeah, I would say um, what makes us most efficient, Ryan mentioned the Philippines earlier is, you know, where a lot of disasters take place. Mm-hmm. We already have staff on the ground there and we have a facility there, a warehouse So we pre-stage some of our supplies there too. So we're available to respond pretty much immediately. As soon as it's safe for our staff to move around and do, they have supplies there ready to go. So to me, that helps us being efficient. Anywhere that we already have a feeding program and we have supplies there, it's immediate response is available because we have the supplies on hand. Our team does a great job on communicating with if our staff or our partners that's in that um, region. So they're able to find out firsthand what is needed. Back in the day, we used to say, oh, we're gonna send in a team to um, go in and evaluate what happened. And so you're losing time with that already. Cause time you get a flight, you get in country. What if the airport was damaged? You know, you had to go flying into a neighbor country and getting transportation across. So now that we have made a footprint in so many different countries around the world, we're able to immediately contact someone in that region and say, hey, what is the damage really? We're hearing this. And they may come back and say, we've got it. It's not as bad as, you know, they're portraying for whatever reason. Or no, we need more. They're not in, you know, we don't know the details yet, but we know that there's people missing or there could be a mudslide that they can't even get to the affected area. So I think that makes us more efficient of having supplies already on the ground in a lot of these areas for a feeding program that we can tap into those supplies and then replenish them. Advice on shipping to difficult countries. Always do the research ahead of time. Mm -hmm. Talk to a, a freight forwarder, talk to a shipping line, talk to another NGO or someone that's already working in that country. They can tell you ahead of time if there's special paperwork you need, or if you have to go to the consulate here in the US to get a pre-approval, there's certain countries that you just can't load a container and send it. Right,
2: right.
3: So, and some supplies aren't allowed. You know, some countries don't want GMO products. Some countries don't allow grains or you know, they don't want certain items in their country because it will take away from their economy too. So always do your legwork ahead of time. There's someone out there that has tried what you're gonna try. Right. Just a matter of finding out who that someone is. A lot of times it's just making a phone call to someone that you met at a conference or a freight forwarder you know, and say, do you know anyone that ships here? And they can make you a connection there. Um, I you know, I always say you cannot do too much planning when you get ready to ship. Now in a disaster response, it may be a hurry up and plan and ship, but we started this past year um, really looking at are where we go into on a normal basis, some disasters, that region is gonna get hit every year. And we know that. We don't know the significant, if it's gonna be enough for us to say we need to send product or if it's gonna be just a response, maybe with purchasing in country or no response, but we still are now planning ahead and we're looking at transit times, what shipping line is the best one to use if a port is closed, is there another port nearby that we can use? So and we've got our consony e information already down. We've got a registration number for that consony. E. We have we're trying to do legwork ahead of time, ahead of the storm per se. So we're ready to go. But um, the more work you can do in the front end, the better off you are before sense. the product would get in country.
2: What was the phrase you guys used earlier about the the good intentions?
3: <laughs> right heart, wrong method.
2: And her wrong method yes I love that. well uh, thank you both so much for your time today this was so interesting um and hopefully our listeners learned a lot uh, more about international disaster response too i know I did. So tell everybody before we go how they can connect with you and support uh convoy of hope and if they have a cargo plane that obviously doesn't <laughs> put on an amazon wish list how can they get uh,
3: that <laughs> we'll need a pilot with that plane okay <laughs> yeah yeah, true. <laughs>
2: So how can they connect with you guys and stay in touch or support your mission?
0: Yeah, and people can learn more by going to convoyofhope.org. Um, shameless plug, our team just launched a new website. Awesome. So people should definitely check it out. It's it's a pretty awesome user experience. Um, we're still learning it on our end too. So <laughs> to tell you what page to go to right now is hard. But you know, of course, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all of those things, Convoy of Hope has its own uh, page so people can... Check there for updates. They can certainly email us uh, or or call call me. Uh, I'll volunteer myself. I won't volunteer Audra without her permission. <laughs> but um, my email address is just R my last name. I think it's in the title of of the of the podcast. But G R A B I L L at convoyofhope.org. Uh, especially if people have questions about um, disaster relief or looking to start their own thing or uh, really anything. I, I'm I'm a I'm a no strangers, only future friends kind of person. So, um, if people want to reach out, they're certainly welcome to.
2: Perfect, and I assume and I you're always that. looking for those uh, corporate donations too to keep those warehouses stocked.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, if someone was interested in partnering with Convoy of Hope, Audra can maybe speak to uh, specifics of things that we don't do. Um, you know, we're a little bit lighter on on the medical side and some different um, types of of product, but. For the most part, we're open to receiving um, <laughs> almost everything and, um, you know, have a huge warehouse and the ability to, to store it and ship it around the world. So if people were interested in that, again, they could reach out to either one of us and we could just uh, connect them with the right people. So we would be super grateful for, for that for sure.
2: Fantastic.
1: Well, there you have it. Thank you so much. And again, if you're listening to uh, this very interesting episode of uh, Supply Chain Now, Logistics with Purpose, uh, please don't don't hesitate to not only go visit their website, but reach out to Ryan, reach out to Audra if you have anything that could help them continue uh, their amazing costs and continue kind of helping others. So I think, uh, unfortunately, as we this year and next year, some fold, I think we'll continue to see some natural disasters happening. Um, So we'll have to be even more efficient. We'll have to be closer together. And if it's just an introduction with someone that you might know, um, a pilot with a plane or someone in the Philippines or wherever else that they might actually need help, just uh, again, network and expanding their network is very important. And of course, if you can donate, please do donate because the money will be, very, very well spent. Uh, Ryan, Audra, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Uh, We could continue to talk about you guys and what you do for for hours, but we appreciate you giving us a little bit of time today uh, to make this uh, Logistics with Purpose episode very special. Thank you so much for what you do. Thank you, guys. Yes, thank you. Well, thank you so much. And to our audience, thank you very much. If you liked uh, the conversation we had today, and if you're interested about learning a little bit more about Logistics with Purpose and some of these other very incredible organizations that we're highlighting on this show, feel free to join us as well for the next one. Feel free to connect Supply Chain Now, Logistics with Purpose. I'm Enrique Alvarez. Christy, have a really good rest of the week.
2: Thank you, guys. And thank
1: you, guys. Thank you. See you, guys. See you.